But the preacher, Mr. Hamilton, was most severely dealt with. His close imprisonment and harsh treatment so affected his health that after some weeks he became dangerously ill of cholera, and though his friends presented a petition to the Privy Council praying that he might be allowed to go to the country for the recovery of his health, and offered to give bond under whatever penalty they chose for his compeering, if his life should be spared, yet this petition, notwithstanding its being accompanied with the attestations of two physicians as to his extreme danger, was not only rejected, but the council assured his friends that they intended to prosecute him for house conventicles at their next meeting. Before, however, the day of that meeting arrived, this excellent young man died in prison, and thus he may be said to have fallen a martyr to the free preaching of the gospel, for the only charge they could bring against him was his delivering a sermon to a few friends in the house of a relative, without being licensed or authorized by a bishop and his death being caused by the inhuman manner in which he was treated, the guilt of it may be as justly laid upon the government as if they had sentenced him to be hanged at the grass market. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 3, page 54. End footnote. The following anecdotes concerning Mrs. Durham may not be deemed unworthy of a place in this brief sketch, as they serve to illustrate both her character and her principles. She was, in, she was in the habit, it would appear, of visiting such of her friends and others as were imprisoned for their steadfast adherence to the presbytery, nor were her visits always confined to those of whose sentiments on religious and ecclesiastical questions she could altogether approve. On one occasion she went to prison to see some females who belonged to the fanatical sect called the Sweet Singers not because she approved of their opinions and practices, but because she felt for them as deluded persons who had been driven to frenzy by the violence of persecution. In this instance, however, she was far from meeting with a cordial reception. Law, when recording the imprisonment of five men and ten women of this sect, who were taken about Cather Moore of Borostowness, says, These people were so deluded of Satan as that they did not work, contrary to that, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, nor would they eat any meat given them by the council, nor drink anything that paid excise. And when honest women, ministers' wives, came to see them, they began to rail upon them and upbraid them with the name of Jezebel, and call them reprobates. Mr. Durham's wife and Mr. William Guthrie's wife were so upbraided. Footnote. Laws Memorials, pages 185 and 186. End footnote. On visiting Mr. Robert Bailey of Jerviswood in prison, she met with a very different character and was both refreshed and instructed by his heavenly spirit and Christian conversation. Quote, when Mrs. Durham came to him that morning before he got his sentence, he said he was never better, and within a very little time he would be well beyond conception. He said they are going to send me in pieces and quarters through all the country but let them hag and hew all my body in as many pieces as they please. I am not much concerned about that, for I know assuredly there shall be nothing of me lost. But all these members shall be wonderfully gathered, and shall all be made like his glorious body, the body of his glory. End quote. Footnote. Wadros Analecta, Volume 3, page 79. End footnote.
Mrs. Durham was accustomed to attend not only house conventicles, but also field meetings, which, as the persecution advanced, became necessary from the vast multitudes who assembled to hear the gospel. The Acts of Parliament and manifold proclamations of the Privy Council by which these men meetings were prohibited did not frighten her from being present at them, nor did the opprobrious names of unlawful conventicles, seminaries of separation, and rendezvous of rebellion applied to them by the government convince her that it was criminal to assemble in the open air to hear the glad tidings of salvation when she remembered that her Savior in the fields and on the mountain's brow taught the multitudes who crowded around him to receive the lessons of wisdom from his lips. The following anecdote relating to her opinion of some of the field preachers has been preserved by Wadrow. Quote, Mr. Patrick Simpson, says he, told me that Mrs. Durham, when reading some sermons of the High Flyers and when hearing some of the more violent of the field preachers, said that she observed just such a difference between the field preachings and those she was used to as she did between the Apocrypha and the Bible when she read them. End quote. Footnote, Wadros Analecta, Volume 1, page 324. End footnote. Mrs. Durham seemed to refer to such of the field preachers as more zealous than wise broke forth in their sermons into bitter invectives and uncharitable censures against the indulged ministers. She also apparently had an eye to the in indigested and superficial theology of their discourses. The former was provoked though it could not be vindicated from the pretext which the acceptance of the indulgence by their more compromising brethren gave to the government to persecute the non-indulged with aggravated severity. The latter is best apologized for from the little leisure they had for reading and study, in consequence of their being constantly driven about from place to place. It is not, however, alleged that she pronounced an unfavorable judgment on all the field preachers a sweeping sentence which could not have been supported by facts, the most of them being far from inclining to extremes, while many of them as Welsh, Blackadder, Riddell, and others preached the gospel with much acceptance, as well as with remarkable success, including among their hearers and converts not a few of the best educated in the country. Another anecdote recorded by the same industrious collector concerning this lady and two ministers, illustrates how galling and oppressive was the yoke of arbitrary and prelatic domination to the Presbyterians, and how ardently they longed for deliverance. Writing in 1731, Wadrow says, In the year 1685 or 1686, Mr. Samuel Arnott died at Edinburgh, after all the persecutions and sufferings he had gone through since Pentland in much peace and joy. There was generally much company that came and saw him on his deathbed. Among others, Mr. James Rowlett, minister at Kilmarnock before the Restoration, came to see him. And, among other things, he asked Mr. Arnott if he had any hopes the Church of Scotland would get out from under this dark cloud she'd been under for twenty-five years or thereby. The other said he had, and he was assured that she would. Yea, added he, I know more, and that is, that you shall live to see and partake of the Church's delivery. And so it came to pass. Mr. Rowett lived till 1690, or a year or two later, it may be, and saw that great work of God at the Revolution. Among others present when this was spoken, that good woman, Mrs. Durham, relict of Mr. Zachary Boyd and Mr. James Durham, was there. 
And she got up and said to Mr. Rowett, Mr. James, I am younger than you. I hope I shall see the day of delivery as well as you. And she danced and skipped for joy. And so it came about. I was at her burial at, ja at Glasgow about the year 1692 or 1693. End quote. Footnote, Wadros Electa, Volume 4, page 285. Mrs. John Carstairs, sister of the preceding, was the eldest daughter of William Muir, Esquire of Glanderston, by his second wife, Jean Hamilton, a daughter of Hans Hamilton, Vicar of Dunlop, and sister to Lord Viscount Clainboy. She was born February 25, 1625. Enjoying, like Mrs. Durham, the blessing of her pious parents, she early devoted herself to God, and like her, she also inherited from them a zealous attachment to Presbyterian principles. She was married to Mr. John Carstairs in 1647 or 1648, when he had just been settled, or when he was about to be settled, Minister of Cathcart, where, however, he did not long remain, having been translated to the High Church of Glasgow in 1650. To her eminent Christian character, Mr. Carstairs frequently bears testimony, many years after they were united in marriage. In a letter to her, dated November 25, 1662, he thus writes, quote, I desire to bless him that ever he was pleased to cast our lot to be together, and that he found you out a helpmeet for me. You were never a temptation to me, nor an obstruction to me, either in my ministerial or Christian course though you have been little furthered and much obstructed by me. But he can make up out of the riches of his grace to you what you have been now these fifteen years at a loss in by me. End quote. Footnote. Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, pages 91 and 92. End footnote. And in another letter to her, dated August 12, 1664, he pronounces upon her a still higher econium. Quote. I desire to bless the Lord for you. You have been to me indeed a meet and faithful help, and if I had more improved your fellowship and counsel, your discreet and wise counsel, I am not ashamed to say it to you. I might have thriven better as a man, as a Christian, and as a minister. He might very justly for my sins deprive me of such a wife, such a mother, such a friend, such a counselor, Yea, of all relations, sweetly centered in such a one. End quote. Footnote. Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, pages, page 133. End footnote. In the correspondence between Mrs. Carstairs and her husband after the persecution had commenced, we have a fine illustration of resolute adherence to duty amid great temptations and dangers. Several of the letters which passed between them have come down to our day, and while from these it is manifest that Mr. Carstairs was a man of fortitude and magnanimity in the cause of Christ, it is equally apparent from them that Mrs. Carstairs was not inferior to her, her husband in these virtues. When he began to be molested for his Presbyterian principles, Mr. Carstairs applied himself to the task of fortifying her mind for those hardships and sufferings which, without a dereliction of duty they could not escape. On receiving a summons on the 15th of November, 1662, to appear before the Privy Council, writing to her from Hall Craig on the very day on which he received it, 
He thus speaks, quote, I hope, my dear, you can bear through the grace that hath often strengthened you in difficulties that have occurred about me since we came together, to hear without vexation of mind that I have this day got a charge to compere before the council this same day, fourteen days, a double whereof I have sent you. It may be he will pity me and help me. The cause is good and nothing at all disgraceful. Oh, to have a suitable frame every way. Pray for it and for sinless and inoffensive through bearing. Now, my heart, let me beseech you to take courage in the Lord who hath given you a room in his heart and will in due time give you a room among them that stand by the throne. Resolve to endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We may see this storm blow over if kept faithful and meet with higher and holier things. End quote. Footnote, Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, pages 91 and 92. End footnote. In like manner, when on his being summoned to appear in April 1664 before the High Commission Court for having been a witness to the dying testimony in favor of Presbytery, which his brother-in-law, Mr. James Wood, professor of divinity in the College of St. Andrews, left behind him, he fled to escape the fury of Archbishop Sharp, which he had thus provoked, and hid himself for some time in Ireland and the west of Scotland. He thus encourages her in a letter written from the place of his retreat, dated May 27, 1664. If at this next meeting of the Privy Council some men shall be cruel and others shall disappoint us and prove vanity and a lie, think it not strange, neither let it trouble you. It's like we will have trouble in the world, but if we shall have peace in him that hath overcome the world, we have reason to be of good cheer. Let us quietly and patiently wait for our sentence in these courts from God, which, though as from men it should be unjust and cruel, yet as from God it will be just, holy, and, I hope, good. End quote. Footnote. Mr. Carstairs, about the end of April or the beginning of May, had also been summoned to appear before the Privy Council. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 412. This quote came from the letters of Mr. John Carstairs, page 120. End footnote. The high Christian sentiments expressed in these extracts were not now for the first time presented to the attention of Mrs. Carstairs. They had long been familiar to her mind, and amid the trials of the past she had practically exemplified them. It does not a little satisfy and refresh me, says Mr. Carstairs in a letter to her, July 3, 1664, that the Lord is graciously pleased to keep your own mind calm and quiet. And indeed, it hath been his manner to the commendation of his grace be it spoken to bless you with somewhat of that mercy in most of the difficulties you have been in providence trysted with since our being together. A mercy indeed and highly valuable without which the least of difficulties will easily embitter a very well accommodated lot. Nay, even the very apprehension of a difficulty. End quote. But having counted the cost of self-sacrifice as well as estimated the rich reward of present peace and future glory in becoming a humble follower of Christ, she was prepared for the endurance of severer trials than had hitherto been measured out to her, and when they befell her, she encountered them with a high and holy heroism. On this subject, let us hear her speak for herself. 
In a letter she addressed to Mr. Carstairs without date, but evidently written when he was forced to flee for his connection with Mr. Wood's dying testimony for presbytery, we have a fine illustration of the strength and fearlessness of her mind, which true religion and a good cause are so well fitted to impart. She would not have him unnecessarily to expose himself to danger, but trusts that should he fall into the hands of his persecutors, grace would be given him to witness a good confession. She encourages him to bear with, them, with magnanimity the inconveniences of his wanderings from place to place, to quit himself like a man and be strong. And she thanks God for having united her to a husband whom he counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. The following is the letter in which these noble sentiments are expressed. Quote, My dearest and most kind friend, it was refreshing to me to have a line from you, but it troubled me to find you so heavy. He doeth well who hath found it meet to put us in heaviness for a season, finding that there was need of it. It did wound me when I read that in yours, your not being adverse to come here, which is thought by your friends very unmeet and unreasonable, for though you be very clear as to the cause, yet to cast yourself in such eminent hazard is a wrong, and I am persuaded you are not called to it. Nay, you are called to the contrary, to hide as well as you can. And if it please the Lord so to order you be found out, which I wish may not be, I hope he shall glorify himself in you and carry you honorably through. Put not yourself to it, while until the Lord bring you to it. I hope my request, which is so reasonable, shall prevail with you. My dear, weary not in wandering. It hath been the lot of many of his worthies to wander in caves and dens of the earth. And although your accommodation should be very bad, so that you cannot go about duties as you would, he counts your wandering better service to him than your preaching. My dear, a little while will put an end to all our troubles. As for myself, I had reason always to bless the Lord that ever I knew you, and this day I desire to bless him more than ever, that ever I was so nearly related to you, and that I have a husband wandering and suffering for the truth. Let us both bless him together for this. He might have given me one that was persecuting the truth. The Lord strengthen and confirm you. That commodity you desired cannot be gotten for the present, though they be most willing to give it. I hope the Lord shall provide another way. The bearer will show you all other things. The Lord's blessing and protection be with you, and may he be near your soul with the consolation of his spirit. Farewell, my dear. I am your own, J.C. End quote. Footnote. Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, page 157. End footnote. As a further illustration of the heroic spirit which animated this lady, we may give another of her letters to Mr. Carstairs, which is without date, but which, as may be inferred from the allusion in the commencement, was written in the autumn of the year 1667, after he had been denounced a rebel and outlawed. It is as follows, quote, My dearest friend, the bearer will show you how all matters here go. The West Country gentlemen and ministers who were declared rebels are now forfaulted. Footnote. The reference here is to a few country gentlemen in Renfrewshire who had raised a small body of horse to the number of about fifty with the design of joining the Covenanters under Colonel Wallace previous to their defeat at Pentland Hills. 
but who, on learning that Dalziel was between them and their friends, dispersed. Among these gentlemen were two of Mrs. Carstairs' sisters' husbands, the Laird of Ralston and Porterfield of Quarleton. The ministers in this company, besides Mr. Carstairs, were Mr. Gabriel Maxwell, minister at Dundonald, and Mr. George Ramsey, minister at Kilmore's. The greater number of these gentlemen, as well as many other individuals, and all these ministers except Mr. Ramsey, together with several other ministers, were by proclamation declared rebels on the 4th of December, 1666. On their being afterward pursued by Sir John Nisbet, His Majesty's advocate before the Judiciary Court for treason, that court, on the 15th of August, 1667, upon their not compeering, discerned them to be denounced rebels and their lands to fall to His Majesty's use as outlaws and fugitives from His Majesty's laws. And some of the gentlemen, though none of the ministers, were on the 16th of that month forfeited in their absence in life and fortune. Wadrow's History, Volume 2, pages 28, 36, 66, 67, and 73 to 75. End footnote. I bless the Lord, it nothing troubles me. A smile from God and the lifting up of the light of His countenance can make up, and even doth make up, all the injuries man can do, so that the lines are fallen to me in a most pleasant place, and I have a goodly heritage. I think my lot very far above the lot of my adversaries. Blessed be God who made the difference. There being no cause but even so because it pleased Him. My dear, let us willingly cleave to Him and suffer for Him. We owe Him much. How much are we in His debt who hath added this mercy to all the former mercies, that He hath counted us worthy to suffer for His name's sake. Oh, for grace to be steadfast to the end and that he would graciously pardon our unfaithfulness to him and to his cause and people. Alas, Zion's condition lieth not near my heart as it should. J.C. End quote. Footnote. Letters of Mr. John Carstairs, page 160. End footnote. Mrs. Carstairs had issue by her husband three sons and four daughters. Her son William, who became principal of the University of Edinburgh after the Revolution, was one of the most remarkable men of his day, and from his great influence with King William, who he had attended in all his campaigns, was called at court Cardinal Carstairs. None of her children had offspring, with the exception of her daughters Jean and Sarah, who have numerous descendants. Jean married Principal Drew of St. Leonard's College, St. Andrews, and from her principals McCormick and Hill derived descent. Sarah, the fourth daughter and the youngest of the family, married her cousin German, William Dunlop. Footnote. Her aunt, Elizabeth Muir, her mother's sister, was, as we have said before, married to Mr. Alexander Dunlop, minister of Paisley, who was the principal's father. End footnote married her cousin German, William Dunlop, principal of Glasgow College, and from her, besides other eminent men, are descended the, pres- the present Alexander Dunlop, Esquire, Advocate, and the Right Honorable David Boyle, Lord President of the Court of Session. Quote, it is somewhat singular how completely the descendants of Carstairs are mixed, so far as the distinctions of church politics are concerned. 
and it cannot but draw forth a smile from any one versant in these matters in the present day to observe on the same genealogical table and in very close juxtaposition the names of Dr. George Cook, Professor of Moral Philosophy, St. Andrews, and Mr. Alexander Dunlop, Advocate, Edinburgh. Surely none would have thought, at least from their proceedings in church courts, that these two distinguished and opposite leaders of the church were pairs of the same tree. End quote. Footnote. Life of Mr. John Carstairs, prefixed to his letters by the Reverend William Ferry, page 9. End footnote. Lady Anne, Duchess of Hamilton Lady Anne, Duchess of Hamilton, was descended from an ancient and honorable family which originally came from Normandy. Footnote, Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, page 689. End footnote. And which at one time was for fifty years together presumptive heir to the crown of Scotland. From the year 1543, when King James V died, leaving his only daughter, Queen Mary, but a few days old, till the year 1593, when Prince Henry was born, there were only Queen Mary and her son, King James, of the royal blood, and in the event of their death, the crown would have fallen by right to the then representative of the House of Hamilton, who was their nearest kinsman. Footnote Burnett's preface to his memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton. End footnote. Lady Anne was born in the year 1630. Her father, James, third Marquis and first Duke of Hamilton, footnote, he was created Duke of Hamilton, Marquis of Clydesdale, Earl of Arran and Cambridge, Lord Avon and Innerdale by patent, dated at Oxford, 12th April, 1643, to him and the heir's male of his body, which failing to his brother and the heir's male of his body, which failing to the eldest heir female of the Marquis's body without division, and the heir's male of the body of such heir female, they bearing the name and arms of Hamilton, which all failing to the nearest legitimate heir whatsoever of the Marquis. Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, page 704. End footnote. A distinguished man in his day, espoused with ardent zeal the cause of Charles I, in which, however, he was actuated more by personal attachment to Charles than by a sincere desire to establish prelacy or to elevate the royal prerogative. He was His Majesty's High Commissioner to the famous General Assembly which met at Glasgow in 1638, and he dissolved it abruptly. But the dissolution was disregarded, and the Assembly continued to sit until they abolished prelacy. In the subsequent year he was sent down by the King's orders to Scotland, with a fleet and three regiments, to subdue the Covenanters, and appeared in, in the Firth of Forth. It was on this occasion that his mother, the Marchioness Dowager of Hamilton, headed a troop of horse on the shores of Leith to oppose his landing. In 1648, an army being raised in Scotland with the design of rescuing Charles from the English Parliament and restoring him to liberty and power without his being required to make any concessions to his subjects, the Duke was appointed by the Parliament Commander-in-Chief and entered England in July 1648. But the enterprise, which is usually called the engagement, proving unsuccessful, ultimately brought him to the block. 
Footnote, Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, pages 704 and 705. End footnote. The mother of the subject of this sketch was Lady Mary Fielding, daughter of William, Earl of Denby, and Lady Susanna Villiers, sister to the Duke of Buckingham. This lady was married to her father when he was only in the fourteenth year of his age. Quote, Her person, says Burnett, was noble and graceful, like the handsome race of the Villiers. But to such as knew her well, the virtues of her mind were far more shining. She was educated from a child in the court, and esteemed and honored by all in it. She was lady of the Queen's bedchamber, and admitted by Her Majesty into an entire confidence and friendship. And not only was her honor unstained, but even her fame continued untouched with calumny, she being so strict to the severest rules as never to admit of those follies which pass in that style for, gal- for gallantry. End quote. But her crowning excellence was her genuine piety. Though living in a court, she allowed no day to pass over her in which she did not spend large portions of her time in devotional exercises in her closet. She had to the Marquis first three daughters, Mary, Anne, and Susanna, and then three sons, Charles, James, and William. But all her sons and her eldest daughter died young. A year before her death, she was in a languishing condition, and at last fell into a consumption which after a few months' sickness carried her off. About a month previous to the great change calling for her children, she gave them her last blessing and, and embraces, and ordered that they might not be brought near her again, lest the sight of them should kindle too much tenderness in her mind which she was then studying to raise above all created objects and to fix upon the things of eternity. She died on the 10th of May, 1638. Footnote. Burnett's Memories of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 407. End footnote. Thus Lady Anne, in the eighth year of her age, was bereaved of a valuable mother, from whose instructions and example her opening mind, and as many reasonably be supposed, might have derived the greatest advantage. Her religious education does not, however, appear to have been neglected. Her father, who had been trained up by a pious mother, and who there is reason to hope, notwithstanding the errors of his public life into which he was betrayed by his warm loyalty and ardent ambition, had not ceased to make religion a matter of personal concern, always recommended to her the fear and love of God as that in which he himself had found his only joy and repose. The following words are a part of one of his letters to her and her sister, Lady Susanna, which he wrote a little before his going to England on the fatal enterprise of the engagement. Quote, In all crosses, even of the highest nature, there is no other remedy but patience and with alacrity to submit to the goodwill and pleasure of our glorious Creator and be contented therewith, which I advise you to learn in your tender age, having enjoyed that blessing myself and found so great comfort in it while involved in the midst of infinite dangers. End quote. Footnote, Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 404. End footnote. When only a child, she was promised in marriage to Lord Lorne, eldest son of the Marquis of Argyle, who suffered in 1661. 
About the eleventh year of her age, in 1641 or 1642, a contract of marriage was agreed to betwixt her father on her part and the Marquis of Argyle on the part of his son, Lord Lorne, to be celebrated when the two children should be of age. The marriage portion is a hundred thousand merks, the yearly jointure fifteen thousand merks, and the penalty to him who resiled thirty-six thousand merks, all remedy of law excluded. Footnote. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 202. End footnote. These two noblemen were then, and had been for a considerable time before, on terms of very intimate friendship, but shortly after this contract was signed, their sweetest wine became their sourest vinegar. Footnote. Scott of Scott Starvett's Staggering State of Scott's Statement. Statesman. End footnote. For they fell out and assumed positions of mutual hostility. Hamilton supported Charles. Argyle, changing his opinions, became the uncompromising champion of the Covenanters. Two great parties thus came to be formed in the nation, of which these two noblemen were the respective heads. One called the Hamiltons, the other called the Campbells, and the engagement was the greatest, the great point upon which they were divided. In consequence of these differences, the contemplated marriage between Lady Anne and Lord Lorne never took place. Footnote. Rose Life of Robert Blair, pages 178, 192, 198. Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 204. End footnote. In times of civil commotion like those which then passed over Scotland and England, the leaders of the contending parties are peculiarly exposed to the risk of falling a sacrifice to the fury of one another. And Lady Anne was doomed to undergo the trial of seeing her father, upon the disastrous issue of the engagement, condemned to suffer a violent death. His forces being routed by the English at Preston on the 20th of August, he surrendered himself to Lambert at Atoxeter on the 25th of that month and was imprisoned at Windsor. He succeeded in making his escape, but was retaken at Southwark and committed to prison at St. James. While he lay there, urgent applications were made to the Marquis of Argyle, who then, who had then the chief power in Scotland, that the Committee of Estates would, as a means of saving at least his life, own that what he did was by the authority of that kingdom. But Argyle de- declined to interfere, Lady Anne herself left no means untried to prevail with him to interpose for the life of her father, but her exertions were without effect, for, he said, that since the English had murdered their king, notwithstanding the protest of the Scottish commissioners against the deed, it was not to be expected that the interposition of the most influential in Scotland in any other things would be of any weight, nor was it fit that they should any more address the murders of their sovereign." On the 6th of February, 1649, her father was brought to trial before the same court which had condemned Charles to the block, and on the 6th of March, he was sentenced to be beheaded on Friday, the 9th of that month. In terms of the sentence, he was executed in Palace Yard, Westminster, in the 43rd year of his age. He died in a very pious manner and without much fortitude. 
Having delivered his last speech on the scaffold, he uttered a most fervent prayer, concluding with these words, O glorious God, O blessed Father, O holy Redeemer, O gracious Comforter, O holy and blessed Trinity, I do render up my soul into thy hands and commit it to the mediation of my Redeemer, praising me for all thy dispensations that it hath pleased thee to confer upon me, even for this. Praise and honor and thanks be to thee from this time forth and forevermore. End quote. After some religious discourse with, with Dr. Sibbald, whom he chose as his chaplain on the scaffold and who exhorted him to look to the fountain of the blood of Christ as his only hope, he embraced his servants who were present, commending their fidelity to him and praying the Lord to bless them. He then turned to the executioner and told him he was to engage shortly in prayer while he lay with his head on the block, after which he should give him a sign by stretching out his right hand, telling him at the same time that he freely forgave him, as he did all the world. Upon the giving of the sign, the executioner at one blow severed the head of the unfortunate nobleman from his body, which was received in a crimson taffety scarf by two of his servants kneeling by him, and was, together with his body, immediately put in a coffin, which was ready on the scaffold, and, according to his orders, sent down by sea to Scotland and interred in his family burial place at Hamilton. Footnote. Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, pages 401 to 405. End footnote. To Lady Anne, who was now in the nineteenth year of her age, and to her sister, Susanna, who was somewhat younger, this was a great affliction. The loss of a father who loved them with an almost unequal parental tenderness, and to whom they reciprocated the tenderest filial affection, was calculated, considered in all its distressing circumstances, to lacerate their feelings in the most painful manner, and the more especially at their green age when the feelings were most tender, and when consequently the bereavement would pierce the heart with the intensest agony. It was happy for them that in their uncle, Duke William, footnote, their father was succeeded in his titles and estates in terms of the patent by his brother William, end footnote, who was distinguished for his personal piety as well as for his accurate views of divine truth, they found a relative both affectionately disposed and well qualified to administer to them the religious comfort they needed, and to take the place of their father in caring for them. Lady Anne, who had already given evidence of the pious temper of her mind, sought under this dispensation consolation in religion, and by divine grace she was enabled to exercise that Christian resignation and submission to the will of God, which is our bounden duty under the greatest trials of life. The last memorial she and her sister received of their father's affection for them was a letter which he wrote to them on the day of his execution, but which would not come to their hands till he had passed from time into eternity. It is as follows, quote, My most dear children, it hath pleased God to dispose of me, as I am immediately to part with this miserable life for a better, so that I cannot take that care of you which I both ought and would, if it had pleased my gracious Creator to have given me longer days. But his will be done, and I with alacrity submit to it, desiring you to do so, and that above all things you apply your hearts to seek him, to fear, serve, and love him, 
and then doubt not but he will be a loving father to you while you are on earth and thereafter crown you with eternal happiness. Time will permit me to say no more, so the Lord bless, guide, and preserve you, which is the prayer of your most loving Father. Hamilton, St. James's, 9th March, 1649 Let this remember me to my dear sisters, brothers, and other friends, for it is all I write. End quote. Footnote. Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 397. End footnote. On the day preceding his execution, he had written a letter to his brother William requesting him to be a father to his two daughters that they might not be forced to marry against their wills. Nor did Duke William fail in the duty he owed to these orphans. Quote, he entailed his friendship for, them, for him, his brother, says Burnett, on his daughters who have desired me to acknowledge to the world that in him they met with the tenderness of a father, the kindness of a friend, and everything that was generously noble and obliging. End quote. So high was the opinion he formed of Lady Anne that at his going to England he professed he was glad he had no sons to lie in her way to the enjoyment of her father's estates and honors, adding that if he had had forty sons he rather wished it to her than he could do to any of them. On his part nothing was wanting to promote her happiness. Whatever his estates could procure was at her command, and the authority which, with which he invested her at so early an age indicates the confidence he placed in her judgment and discretion. Writing to her from Camphir, 10th June, 1649, he says, quote, Dear niece, Amongst all my just afflictions there is none lies so heavy upon me as that I am still made incapable of paying that duty to you which I owe you. It is the greatest debt I owe on earth and which would most join me to pay, as well from inclination as from nature and obligations. But all happiness being denied me, I cannot hope for that which would be the greatest. Before this, I hope you are settled in Hamilton where you have, as is most just, the same power your father had. And I beseech you to dispose as absolutely upon everything that is there. All I have interest in, so long as they will acknowledge me, will obey you, and I shall earnestly beg that if there be any failings, either from, either from persons or in providing what you shall think fit to call for, which the fortune can procure, you advertise me thereof, and if it be not helped, so my fortune can do it, let me be as infamous as I am unfortunate. I will trouble you no longer, but pray the Lord to bless you with comfort and health. Dear niece, your real servant, Hamilton. End quote. Footnote. Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 397. End footnote. As a further proof of his esteem and affection for her, he nominated and appointed her, failing heirs male of his own body, his sole executrix, in his last will written by himself at The Hague in Holland on the 28th day of May, 1650, and freely bequeathed to her all his jewels, silver plate, hangings, picture broads, and whatsoever goods were his to be disposed of. And after nominating and appointing in the event of her removal by death before himself, her sister Susanna, his sole executrix, and freely bequeathing to her the foresaid articles, 
He recommends the care of his five daughters to such of his nieces as should succeed to his dignity and estate, expressing his confidence that they would be careful of their education and faithful in paying them what had been provided for them. Footnote Commissariat of Edinburgh, 28th of September, 1652 Manuscript in Her Majesty's Register House, Edinburgh In that record, the will of the Duke is recorded at length. It is a very interesting document from the remarkably pious spirit which it breathes throughout. End footnote We shall quote at length another of the letters of this amiable man to Lady Anne, both because it affords a pleasing illustration of his own Christian character and because from its tone it is evident that she had then been brought in good earnest to attend to the things of God and eternity. The letter was written only eight days after the terrible defeat and slaughter which the Scottish royalists sustained on Sabbath, July 20, 1651, at Inverkeithing in Fife, from the English Parliamentary Army under Cromwell. Footnote. So prodigious was the slaughter that a rill at the scene of action called Pinkerton Burn is said to have run red with blood for three days. End footnote. This disaster greatly discouraged the royalists, and what rendered their condition still more desperate was that Cromwell was now between the king and the northern counties of Scotland, which were most devoted to the king's interest, and from which he expected provisions and supplies of men. It being thus impossible to maintain the war longer in Scotland, His Majesty resolved to march into England, where he hoped for large additional forces but many of his soldiers and some of his officers, broken in spirit by their late defeat and despairing of future success, deserted the army. It was in these circumstances and when about to march into England that Duke William wrote the following letter. Footnote Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 427. End footnote. Quote, Dear niece, Indeed I know not what to say to you. I would fain say something more encouraging than my last was, but I cannot lie. Our condition is no better, and since that time we have a thousand men, I fear twice that number, run from our army. Since the enemy shuns fighting with us except upon advantage, we must either starve, disband, or go with a handful of men into England. This last seems to be the least ill, yet it appears very desperate to me for more reasons than I would trouble you with. I fear your own reason will afford you too many. Dear niece, it is not your courage I will desire you to make use of in this extremity. Look for strength to bear it from a higher power. All your natural virtues will not resist it. Therefore look to him who hath in former times assisted you to resist a great affliction and can do it again if you seek him aright. You have already lost so much that all other worldly losses were drowned in that. Those you meet with now are Christian exercises, wherewith oft-times the Lord visits his own to wean their affections from things here below, that we may place them upon himself in whom we have all things. And if we could, as we ought, set our hearts upon him, we should find ourselves very little concerned in most things which bring us greatest trouble here on earth, where we are but for a minute in our way to eternity." Oh, consider that word eternity, and you will find that we struggle here for that, that's even less than nothing. Why trouble we ourselves for earthly losses? 
For when we have lost all we have, there are thousands as dear to God as we, as poor as we. We are rich, though we lose the world if we gain him. Let us set before our eyes the example of those who, to give testimony to the truth, rejoice to lay down their lives. Nay, let us with humble presumption follow the pattern of our blessed Savior, who for our sake suffered more than man can think on, the burden of all our sins and the wrath of his Father. And shall we then repine to lay down our lives for him when he calls for it from us, to give a nearer admittance to him than we can hope for, while we are clogged with our clay tenements? Dear niece, I should never be weary to talk with you. Though this be a subject I confess I cannot speak of well, but even that happiness is bereft me by the importunity of a crowd of persons that are now in the room with me, grudging the time I take in telling you that while I am, I am yours, etc. Hamilton, Sterling, 28th July, 1651. End quote. Footnote. Burnett's Memoirs of the Dukes of Hamilton, page 426. End footnote. Duke William, having proceeded to England and engaged in battle with Cromwell's forces at Worcester, was mortally wounded. After receiving the wound and feeling that his end was approaching, he wrote to his lady a letter which contains the following reference to Lady Anne and her sister. Quote, I will not so much as in a letter divide my nieces and you. The Lord grant you may be constant comforts to one another in this life and give you all eternal happiness with your Savior in the life to come. To both of your cares I recommend my poor children. Let your work be to make them early acquainted with God and their duties to Him. And though they may suffer many wants here before removal from hence, yet they will find an inexhaustible treasure in the love of Christ. End quote. This nobleman died on the twelfth of the month on which the above letter is dated, nine days after he had received the wound, in the thirty-fifth year of his age, and was interred in the Cathedral Church of Worcester. Footnote. Anderson's Memoirs of the House of Hamilton, page 145. End footnote. After her uncle's death, Lady Anne, who succeeded him in his titles and estates, experienced the vicissitudes of fortune to which many of the Scottish nobility were subjected for their opposition to Cromwell, who had now laid Scotland prostrate at his feet. Her father was accepted from the benefit of Cromwell's act of grace and pardon in 1654 and his estates were forfeited, four hundred pounds a year being reserved out of them to Lady Anne, and two hundred pounds a year to her sister. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage of Scotland, Volume 1, page 706. End footnote. This was no doubt sufficient to secure them from privation, but for a family to be thus reduced, which once possessed ample revenues, and was at one time presumptive heir to the Scottish throne, afforded a striking instance of the mutability of worldly wealth and greatness. Whether even this sum was regularly paid we do not know, but it is affirmed by tradition that for a series of years she was in so impoverished a condition as to have been dependent upon a female, faithful female servant, the only one that remained with her, who employed herself incessantly in spinning to procure the means of subsistence for her grace. Footnote. Tradition in this instance has probably to some extent exaggerated the facts of the case. End footnote. 
It is pleasing on the same authority to record that when Restoration put an end to the misfortunes of the Duchess by reinvesting her with her estates, that she expressed her gratitude to her affectionate domestic by the substantial gift of a piece of land near Les Mahago, sufficient to maintain her in ease and comfort all the rest of her life. Footnote. Chambers, Picture of Scotland, Volume 1, pages 349 and 350. End footnote. During Cromwell's administration, she resided alternately at Broadwich, Broadwich Castle in Arran and Strathaven Castle, which was from an early period one of the seats of the Hamilton family. Footnote. It is said to have been built by Andrew Stewart, grandson of Murdoch, Duke of Albany, New Statistical Account of Scotland, Lanarkshire, Avondale. End quote. The castle of Strathaven, or Avondale, stands upon a rocky eminence at the town of Strathaven on the banks of a small rivulet called Pomilion, which winds round the greater part of it and falls into the Avon about a mile below. Though now in a very dilapidated state, it was then in good condition and a place of considerable strength, being surrounded by a strong wall with turrets at certain distances and having the entrance secured by a drawbridge. A tradition is still current at Clydesdale respecting the Duchess while she resided in this castle in the time of Cromwell, which places her fortitude in adversity in a very interesting light and reminds us of the fearless spirit of her grandmother. To the hero of the Commonwealth, whose vengeance was directed against her family on account of that determined opposition to him which had issued fatally both as to her father and uncle, she had, as might be anticipated, no friendly feelings. And it is said that when one of his generals passed the castle with some military going from Hamilton to Ayrshire, she gave orders to fire upon him as he approached the town of Strathaven. The general inquired who lived there, and being told it was a lady, he replied, quote, She must be a bold woman indeed. End quote. Footnote. Anderson's Memoirs of the House of Hamilton, page 150. After the death of the Duchess in 1716, the castle of Strathaven was allowed to fall into disrepair. And as Chambers says, it now overhangs the town of Strathaven with its shattered and haggard walls like the spirit of Fingal represented by Ossian as looking down from the clouds upon his living descendants. Picture of Scotland, Volume 1, page 349. Though now in ruins, the castle is still a beautiful feature in our landscape. New Statistical Account of Scotland, Lanarkshire, Avondale. End footnote. In the days of her adversity, her tenants and vassals in that neighborhood showed to her ardent friendship and attachment. This she never forgot when favored with more prosperous days. And she made an annual visit to Strathaven at the celebration of the Lord's Supper till she was prevented by the infirmities of old age. Footnote, Anderson's Memoirs of the House of Hamilton, page 150. End footnote. In the year 1656, she was married to Lord William Douglas, eldest son of William, first Marquis of Douglas. He was born 24th December 1634 and created Earl of Selkirk, Lord Dare and Shortcliffe by patent, dated 4th August 1646, to him and his male's heir whatsoever. He was fined £1,000 by Cromwell's Act of Grace and Pardon, 1654. 
The minutes of a contract of marriage between the Duchess and this nobleman with consent of his father, Marquis of Douglas, dated 1656, are still preserved among the Hamilton Papers. Footnote. Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 202. End footnote. After the restoration, in consequence of a petition from the Duchess, he had, by letters patent, on the 20th of September, 1660, superadded to his own honours and title and precedency of the Duke of Hamilton and other titles in right of his wife on whom these honours had devolved. Footnote. Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 172. End footnote. As might naturally be expected, the Duchess hailed the restoration of Charles II with satisfaction and joy, for it put her in possession of her father's estates and honours of which she had been deprived by Cromwell. But the policy of the government of Charles in overthrowing the Presbyterian Church of Scotland and in ejecting the non-conforming ministers from their churches she contemplated with different feelings. This measure she perceived to be at once unwise in principle and destructive in tendency. The Duke, her husband, at a meeting of the Scottish Council held at London after the Restoration to determine as to the ecclesiastical government to be established in Scotland, reasoned against the setting up of bishops. Footnote Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 390 End footnote he also opposed in the Privy Council the act which they passed at Glasgow October 1, 1662, requiring all ministers who had not conformed to prelacy to desist from preaching and to withdraw immediately from their parishes. He told the Council that the numerous ministers liable to ejectment were highly esteemed and beloved by their people, and that it would be impossible to find a competent number of well-qualified men to fill their places. Footnote, Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 261. End footnote. The Duchess was precisely of the same sentiments. She may not have studied, and Bishop Burnett informs us that she told him she had not studied the subject of church government, and arrived at the same enlightened and thorough conviction of the Jus Divinum of Presbytery, to which she had arrived on other points but she saw that the ministers to be visited by ejectment were men of distinguished piety, of great diligence in the discharge of their ministerial duties, and of extensive usefulness in promoting religion and good order among the people. Not to speak, then, of her learning to the side of the Presbyterian faith, which is manifest from her adhering to and favoring it during her whole life, through evil report as well as good report, as a woman of piety and a friend of public order, she regretted the ejectment of such men and the infliction of a great calamity on the country. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 261. The Duchess, who had much influence upon the Duke, greatly contributed, there is little doubt, to infuse into his mind favorable feelings toward the Covenanters and to dispose him to make exertions for mitigating the oppressions under which they groaned. Such feelings he entertained and such exertions he made. After the restoration he opposed, as we have seen, the setting up of bishops and the act of Glasgow by which some hundreds of ministers were ejected from their charges. 
During the persecution, he often acted as a drag chain upon the more violent of the members of the Privy Council, advocating a moderate and pacific policy, and opposing the terrible measures which were madly adopted against religion and liberty by the ruling party. In the Parliament of 1673, he distinguished himself by his opposition to Lauderdale, whose rapacity, tyranny, and oppression were becoming intolerable, demanding that the state of the nation should be examined and its grievances represented to the king before the supplies were granted. On repairing to court toward the end of November 1675, he earnestly dealt with the king for a more ample indulgence to the non-conforming ministers by which he greatly displeased his majesty, who told him he had been informed of his too great kindness to and compliance with the non-conformists of Scotland. Footnote Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 565. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 178. End footnote. In 1676, he was removed from his place in the Privy Council for his manly and spirited opposition to the oppressive sentence of the Council against the pious and patriotic Bailey of Jerviswood, who, for simply rescuing his brother-in-law, Mr. James Kirkton, from Captain Carstairs, was fined 500 pounds sterling in order to lie in prison till the fine was paid. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 327. End footnote. He was also prohibited to leave Scotland, but notwithstanding this prohibition, he and 13 others went up to court in March 1678, to complain of the arbitrary and oppressive administration of Lauderdale in regard to the Highland host, the imposition of the bond, the charging them with law borrows, and other grievances under which the country labored. On the breaking out of the insurrection in Scotland in May 1679, he and the other Scottish lords of his party then in London offered, an offer which was rejected, to restore peace to the country without having recourse to force or the effusion of blood, provided the sufferings of the people were alleviated. Footnote. Douglas's Peerage, Volume 1, page 708. End footnote. To these notices, other facts of a similar kind, equally favorable to the patriotism and humanity of the Duke, might be added. But we shall only further state that when some were tortured in 1684, in reference to the Earl of Argyle's conspiracy, he opposed such cruel proceedings, alleging that at this rate they might, without accusers or witnesses, take any person off the street and torture him. And he immediately retired, refusing to be present on the ground that if the party should die in the torture, the judges were liable for murder, or at least severely culpable. Footnote Fountain Hall's Notes, page 103 See also Macaulay's History of England, Volume 2, pages 118, 119, 121, and 122. End footnote. Nor was the Duchess of Hamilton alone among the ladies of high life in moderating the persecution by the influence they exerted over those most nearly related to them. The ladies and other female relatives of several others of the members of his Majesty's government were friendly to the persecuted cause, and by their influence as well as by the deference shown to their predilections, individuals were often exempted from the hardships into which they would otherwise have been brought. 
while the violence of the persecution was sometimes considerably mitigated. Of this class were the first wife of the Duke of Lauderdale, footnote, Lady Anne Holmes, second daughter of Alexander, first Earl of Holmes. She was a great means of softening the spirit of Lauderdale, who during her lifetime was more moderate than after her death. From Sir George Mackenzie's Memoirs of Affairs in Scotland, we learn that she promised to procure indulgences for Welsh and other Presbyterian ministers. Wadrill's History, Volume 2, page 244. She died at Paris about 1671. End footnote. The Duchess of Roth, footnote, Lady Anne Lindsay, daughter of the Earl of Crawford and Lindsay. A notice of this lady is given afterward. End footnote. Both the first and second wives of the Earl of Argyle, footnote, his first wife was Lady Mary Stuart, eldest daughter of James, 5th Earl of Moray. She died in May 1668. His second wife was Lady Anne Mackenzie, second daughter of Colin, 1st Earl of Seaforth, and relict of Alexander, 1st Earl of Belcars. A sketch of this lady is also given afterward. End footnote. The Countess of Dundonald, footnote, this lady was Euphemia, daughter of Sir William Scott of Ardross. She attended field conventicles and entertained the field preachers at her palace at Paisley. Blackadder's Memoirs and footnote and others. After the restoration, Hamilton Palace, which is situated in a valley between the town of Hamilton and the Clyde, was the chief place of the residence of the Duchess. The Duchess. Since the time she dwelt in that princely mansion, its aspect has very much changed. Great additions in the best architectural style were made to it in the year 1826, and as a whole it is now considered the most magnificent residence in Scotland. Being extremely splendid in its interior, and having a picture gallery peculiarly rich in paintings by the greatest Italian masters. In the time of the Duchess, it was a large building of moderate external elegance. The town of Hamilton being in the vicinity of her place of residence, she at all times made the welfare, both temporal and spiritual, of the inhabitants of that town and parish the object of her special concern. As an instance of her desire to promote their spiritual good, as well as of her pious care for the sanctity of the Sabbath, it may be mentioned that in cooperation with the Duke, her husband, and the Baileys of Hamilton, she obtained in 1661 an act of Parliament changing the fairs of Hamilton from Saturday to Thursday, and its weekly markets from Saturday to Friday. The reason inducing the parties to apply for this act was, as is stated in the act itself, their observing the daily inconveniences arising through the weekly market being upon the Saturday, whereby the people resorting to it were much occasioned in their return homeward to be late in the night and sometime to encroach upon the Lord's Day next ensuing and so scandalous to God's worship therein. Footnote, Acts of Scottish Parliament. End footnote. To her zeal for the temporal good of the town of Hamilton, ample testimony is borne by the town council records. In 1668, Charles II granted a charter to her, and in 1670, the magistrates then in office accepted a charter from her with consent of her husband, by which Hamilton was constituted the chief burg of the regality and dukedom of Hamilton. Footnote. 
By this charter, the family of Hamilton has the right of appointing the town clerk and of electing two baileys annually from a list of six names chosen by the council, but including the baileys of the former year from their own number. The Duke and Duchess elected the first council, but the right of electing a new council annually in future was vested forever in the council of the preceding year. In the old deeds, the Duchess is styled High and Mighty Princess. End footnote. And, quote, During the course of her long life, she was a benefactor to the town of Hamilton as she endeavored to ameliorate the condition of the inhabitants and always acted strictly in conformity to the charter. Hence, the Baileys and town council seem at all times to have looked up to her with a kind of filial respect and were always ready to comply with her requests, which indeed were never incompatible with the interests of the community. Footnote. Anderson's Memoirs of the House of Hamilton, pages 488 and 489. End footnote. During the persecution, applications were often made to her to employ her interest in behalf of the persecuted. To such applications she always listened with Christian sympathy and was ever ready to do all in her power to afford assistance and relief to the oppressed. The trials she had passed through in early life had exerted the most beneficial influence in the formation of her character. The loss of an affectionate and beloved father in circumstances so deeply distressing and the death of an endeared uncle, also in painful circumstances, had chastened her spirit and strengthened that compassion for the suffering and that benevolent interest in the welfare and happiness of others which she exemplified throughout life. In the fate of the youthful Hugh McHale, who suffered martyrdom in 1666, she took a particular interest. His youth, his amiable dispositions, his eminent piety, and his promising usefulness as a minister of the gospel, as well as the excellent character of his father, excited her compassion, and after he had been tortured and indicted to stand trial for treason before the court of justiciary, she sent with his brother, Mr. Matthew, ten days before his trial commenced, a letter to the Duke of Ross, His Majesty's High Commissioner, earnestly beseeching him to do what he could to save the life of this excellent young man. With this letter and another to the Commissioner from the Lady Marchioness of Douglas, her mother-in-law, his brother went on the 8th of December from Edinburgh to Glasgow, where the Commissioner was at that time on a visit. What effect the intercessions of these ladies had upon the Duke or whether they moved him to write to the king on the subject, we have not ascertained. His Majesty, however, not long after this, and previous to the execution of Mikhail, sent down a pardon to the prisoners concerned in the Pentland Rising, who were not executed, and ordered them to be sent to Barbados. But the pardon failed of taking effect through the baseness of Archibald Sharp, who, besides feeling toward the Presbyterians that inveterate Malignity, which has in every age been characteristic of apostates, never forgot the terms in which he fancied Mikhail had spoken concerning him in a sermon. Footnote. Mikhail's sermon referred to is preached from the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 7. The passage which proved so offensive was an elegant apostrophe in which the preacher appealed to the persecutors of past ages whether God had not proved faithful to his threatenings against persecutors as well as to his promise of deliverance to his church and people. 
Let Pharaoh, said he, let Haman, let Judas, let Herod, let each of them speak from experience of God's faithfulness. Let all then have ears to hear, and hearing acknowledge that those who have made themselves remarkable for persecution, God has stigmatized by his judgments. The malicious gloss which the party then in power put upon these words was that the preacher had publicly marked out and threatened or stigmatized the king, commissioner, Middleton, Archbishop Sharp, and the Duke of York, the king's brother, under the characters of Pharaoh, Haman, Judas, and Herod. Coltness Collections, page 47. Sharp was peculiarly sensitive to the slightest allusion, real or supposed, to the subject of his perfidy and apostasy, nor did he fail when he found opportunity to revenge himself on such as offended him on this score. End, foot, end footnote. The prelate who had been biding his time had now full opportunity given him of gratifying his mortal hatred and revenge and determined that whoever was spared, Michael, should not escape. He concealed the king's pardon till Michael and four others with him were executed. Footnote. Naphtali, page 363, McCree's Memoirs of Veach, page 36, Rose Life of Robert Blair, page 506. Another sufferer on whose side the sympathies of the Duchess were enlisted was Mr. James, James Mitchell, who had attempted the assassination of Archbishop Sharp. It cannot be supposed that Mitchell's attempt, which was condemned by the great body of the Presbyterians, was approved of by a lady so well informed, and so opposed to all extreme courses, as was the Duchess. Still, the severity which w with which he was treated excited commiseration in many who condemned his rash and criminal act. And after he was laid in prison, some of this class of the Presbyterians were very active in endeavoring to obtain his liberation, and the more especially as they entertained apprehensions, which, as was afterward proved, were too well founded, that he would be brought to the scaffold a punishment for his offense, in their estimation, unduly severe. Among other means, one of them, a lady, applied to the Duchess when she passed through Edinburgh in November 1675 on her way to London, requesting her to exert her influence at court to procure his liberty or secure his personal safety. She received the application with much courtesy and expressed her readiness to do everything in her power on behalf of Mitchell, who had then been imprisoned for nearly two years. Mr. John Carstairs, in a letter to Mr. Robert McWard, dated November 29, 1675, speaking on this subject, says, D.H., Duke Hamilton, passed here, Edinburgh, with his lady and eldest daughter for London Monday last. My friend, footnote, might not this be Mrs. James Durham? End footnote spoke to her, the Duchess, about our friend, Mitchell. She was very civil and told her there needed be no interposing if there should be any access to deal for that person. End quote. But though Charles had considerable respect for the Duchess, and, ungrateful though he was, sometimes expressed to her and probably in some measure felt the obligations under which he laid to her father and her uncle, who had sacrificed their lives in his cause, Yet at this time her patronage of the Presbyterians had lowered her in the scale of the royal favor, and her intercessions were besides resisted, 
and again rendered ineffectual by Archbishop Sharp, whose vengeance would be appeased with nothing less than the blood of the man who had made an attempt on his life. In 1670, when Archbishop Leighton proposed his scheme of accommodation between the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians, of which among all his party Dr. Burnett was the most zealous supporter, it was considered highly desirable to secure the mediating influence of the Duchess of Hamilton in consequence of the high esteem in which she was held by the Presbyterians and the great weight she had among them. Leighton sent to the western counties six of the most popular prelatic ministers he could engage to go around the country to preach in vacant churches and to argue in support of the accommodation with such as should come to hear them. Burnett, the most eminent of them on his services being secured, went, as if on a visit to the Duke of Hamilton, but in reality with the view of gaining over the Duchess to the plan, and of prevailing with her to use her influence in in inducing the Presbyterian ministers to embrace it. I was desired, says he, to go into the western parts and to give a true account of matters as I found them there. So I went as on a visit to the Duke of Hamilton, whose Duchess was a woman of great piety and great parts. She had much credit among them, the Presbyterians, for she passed for a zealous Presbyterian, though, he adds, she protested to me she never entered into the points of controversy and had no settled opinion about forms of government. Only she thought their ministers were good men who kept the country in great quiet and order. They were, she said, blameless in their lives, devout in their way, and diligent in their labors. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 480, 481, 508. In this and in the subsequent accounts given by Burnett of what the Duchess said in reference to the Presbyterian minister, there may, without questioning his veracity, be room for thinking that unintentionally, no doubt, he gives to her speeches a coloring derived from his own peculiar leanings and sentiments, just as we every day see the narration of facts derive a coloring from the same cause. For example, we have some doubt whether the Duchess, in speaking of the Presbyterian ministers, would say in these precise times that they were devout in their way, as if her own personal piety was of a different type from theirs. The fact being that it was a that it was similar in character to that of the strictest of the Covenanters, to that of such men as Durham, Binning, and the Guthries, and that her views of doctrine, like theirs, were strictly Calvinistic. Such were the piety and religious sentiments of her uncle, Duke William, from whom she derived much religious instruction and spiritual profit. And such were the piety and religious sentiments of her daughter, Catherine, Duchess of Athol, who was educated under her own eye. Indeed, it appears that it was her personal piety and her Calvinistic views of doctrine more than any settled opinion she had as to church government which caused her decided preference of the preaching of the ejected ministers. The probability then is that she simply said that they were devout and that Barnett, influenced in his ideas of personal piety by his Arminian sentiments, unconsciously represented her as saying that they were devout in their way. End footnote. The Duchess cordially approved of the plan proposed in the accommodation of admitting the Presbyterian ministers to the vacant churches. The people were all in a frenzy, says Burnett, and were in no disposition to any treaty. The furiousest men among them were busy in conventicles, 
inflaming them against all agreements. So she thought that if the more moderate ministers were put in vacant churches, the people would grow tamer and be taken out of the hands of the mad preachers that were then most in vogue. This, she added, would likely create confidence in them in the government, for they were not so possessed with prejudice as to believe that all that was proposed was only an artifice to make them fall out among themselves and deceive them at last. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 481. End footnote. She got many of the more moderate of the Presbyterian ministers to come to Burnett, and they all talked in a similar strain. From the manner in which the terms of the accommodation were, present, were represented to her by Burnett and from her not having closely turned her attention to the study of church government, she did not, however, perceive that the scheme, being at variance with Presbyterian principles, would have ultimately secured the triumph of prelacy and could not, therefore, be conscientiously accepted by the Presbyterians. Even after the Presbyterian ministers had held meetings on the subject and had rejected the proposed measure as inconsistent with their principles, she endeavored to prevail with them to embrace it. She sent for some of them, and for Hutchinson in particular. She said she did not pretend to understand nice distinctions in the terms of dispute. Here was plain sense. The country might be again at quiet, and the rest of those that were outed admitted to churches on terms that seemed to all reasonable men very easy. Their rejecting this would give a very bad character of them and would have very bad effects of which they might see cause to repent when it would be too late. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, page 511. End footnote. But fortunately, the advice of the Duchess, which was, in fact, though she might not perceive it, to advise them to give up without a struggle the cause for which they had all suffered, and for which not a few of their countrymen had already sacrificed their lives, was not complied with. And thus the Presbyterian ministers proved true to their own consistency and to the cause which they had vowed to defend. After conversing with Hutchinson and urging upon his attention the considerations already mentioned, she found that there was no chance of the scheme being accepted, and told Burnett that all she could draw from him was that he saw the generality of his brethren were resolved not to enter into it, that it would prove a bone of contention and instead of healing old breaches would create new ones. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 511. End footnote. Thus the whole negotiation about the accommodation ended in nothing. There is, however, no doubt that the great anxiety of the Duchess to get the Presbyterians to embrace the accommodation proceeded from her sincere desire to have them delivered from the tyranny and oppression under which they had so long groaned. In testimony of the same amiable features of her character, the following passage from a letter written by Mr. John Carstairs to Mr. Robert McWard, November 29, 1675, may be quoted. Quote, Things, says he, have still a sad aspect on us, and that disappointing Parliament being prorogued, it's like we shall tyrannize it here at the old rate. D.H., Duke Hamilton, went here with his lady and eldest daughter for London Monday last, not sent for by the King, but as like to see what he could do for the advocates. His lady told a person of honor, as I heard, that it should be seen that they went upon no account of their own, but for the good of the country and of religion, though without all hope of coming speed as to anything and desired that friends might remember them. End quote. Footnote. 
Quadro Manuscripts, Volume 59, Folio Number 38. End footnote. The Duke, on his visit to the court, urged upon the King, as we have seen before, the granting of a larger indulgence as the most effectual means of quieting the country, a proposal with which His Majesty, guided by his infamous adviser, Lauderdale, refused to comply, taunting the Duke as a favorer of nonconformists. One thing which recommended Burnett to the Duchess, besides his talents, was his tolerant sentiments in regard to matters of religion. Footnote. So high was the opinion she formed of the talents and moderation of Burnett that she engaged him to undertake the task of compiling memoirs of her father and uncle from the many papers in her possession, relating both to their public conduct and to their personal character. These papers she had carefully preserved, her uncle William having charged her to keep them with the same care as she kept the writings of her estate as they would be found to contain a full justification of her father's as well as his own public actings, and desirous to vindicate the memory of these beloved relatives, who, notwithstanding the errors of their political lives, possessed many estimable qualities, she put all these documents into Burnett's hands. This, says he, was a very great trust, and I made no ill use of it. I found there materials for a very large history." I wrote it with great sincerity and concealed none of their errors. I did indeed conceal several things that related to the king. I left out some passages that were in his letters, in some of which was too much weakness and in others too much craft and anger. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 516. The work was printed at London in 1677 and the epistle dedicatory which is addressed to the king is dated London 21st October 1673. It brings out the character of the Duchess's father in a much more favorable light than Clarendon brings out in his history of the rebellion, but that history, which was not published for many years after its author's death, has, not without ground, been suspected of having been corrupted by the Oxford gentleman who published it. End footnote. For although connected with the prelatic church and from principle a supporter of prelacy, Burnett's temper was moderate and, like Leighton, he was an enemy to persecution. In the family of Hamilton, the sufferings of the Presbyterians for adhering to their covenant were not unfrequently the subject of conversation and, when present on such occasions, Burnett was accustomed to speak in terms of high respect of several of the ejected ministers and sufferers as well as of commiseration for them, and even expressed so high an opinion of the national covenant which abjured popery as to affirm it to be his conviction that it would never be well with Scotland until it was, re- was renewed. This spirit, so very different from that which animated the great body of the prelatic clergy, was highly gratifying to her grace, with whose feelings and sentiments it so closely harmonized. Footnote. Wadrow's Analecta, Volume 2, page 282, and His History, Volume 4, page 271. End footnote. Though the Duchess may not have desisted from hearing the curates of Hamilton, the parish in which she usually resided, for on the subject of hearing the curates, the Presbyterians were divided in sentiment, and she confessedly belonged to the less, less rigid portion of the body, Yet she frequented the ministrations of the ejected ministers, taking her children along with her, 
and she was in the habit of attending the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as was administered by them in various parts of the country. When Mr. William Violant became indulged minister at Cambus Nethan, the Lord's Supper was frequently administered in that place and was resorted to by people from all quarters. Among others, the Duchess regularly went over to observe the ordinance, and on such occasions it was her practice to reside at Coltness in the family of Sir Thomas Stewart, who was himself a man of sincere piety, and whose lady was distinguished in no ordinary degree for her Christian virtues and graces. Footnote. Coltness Collections, page 68. In attending the indulged ministers, she was keeping within the strict limits of the law, but breaking through the fences of the law, she sometimes also countenanced conventicles with her presence. This was one main reason of the strong opposition which her husband, the Duke, made to the bond which, by an act of Privy Council, August 2, 1677, all heritors, woodsetters, and life-renters were required to subscribe engaging that neither they themselves, their wives, their children, their servants, nor their tenants should assemble at conventicles or afford encouragement and protection to those who frequented them or employ any outed minister in baptizing their children and that under the highest penalties appointed by former laws which are repeated in the proclamation. After recording the alarm which this bond created in the West, and giving an account of a meeting of noblemen, gentlemen, and heritors in the Shire of Ayr against it, presided over by the Earl of Loudon, Kirkton adds, quote, The bond found no better reception in Clydesdale, where there was a great meeting of heritors at Hamilton, and the Duke of Hamilton being at this time highly displeased with the proceedings of the council, and a great enemy to the bond, Knowing well that he could not answer for his own family, the bond was rejected even by those who were of no principle but to save their estate. End quote. Footnote. Kirkton's History, pages 377 and 378. End footnote. This opposition, however, proved unavailing. It raised Lauderdale's fury to such a pitch that at the council table he made bare his arm above his elbow and swore by Jehovah he would make the refractory landholders enter into it. For the purpose of coercing them, he brought down upon the west of Scotland in 1678 a host of rapacious highlanders to the number of not less than 10,000. Footnote. Burnett, in his own times, says 8,000, volume 2, page 134. Crookshank, in his history, more correctly makes them 10,000, volume 2, page 428. End footnote. Another species of oppression to which the gentlemen who refused to subscribe the bond were subjected was the serving upon them a writ of law borrows. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos, at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.org
www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.